If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Front Porch Conversation on Justice. Uh, today's topic is, which monument will stand in America before and after Charlottesville? Our guests are, will be calling in shortly, so uh, in the interim, if you'd like to call into the show, uh, you can call 929-477-3074, 929-477-3074. If you press 1, we can get you on the air. You can ask your question. So we'll be right back in a few moments.
Again, welcome to Front Porch Conversation on Justice. Uh, we're going to have a conversation today about Charlottesville and before and after, uh, and where do we go from here. Our, our guests are, one of our guests is here on the line today, Noel Castellanos, uh, the president of CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Welcome to the conversation, Noel. Thanks, Charles. I'm glad to be here with you. Well, we're still waiting on Don Coleman, but we'll, we'll okay. go ahead and get into the conversation uh, uh, before, as we, and we'll just wait on him to come on the line. So I know some of our guests are not familiar with CCDA, so we'll start off first. If you can just give us an overview of CCDA and uh, what you do there with Christian Community Development Association. Yes. Um... Really, our roots are in rural Mississippi, where the founder of CCDA, uh, Dr. John Perkins, who is now 87 years old, and he's uh, an incredible uh, pioneer in the area of community development uh, connected to the church. Um, He had left the South to move to California to pursue a better life and business became a businessman, got married, had children. And then after his young son, Spencer, at age five, uh, started going to a vacation Bible school at a local church uh, in Pasadena, uh, in that area, he uh, he invited his parents to come to church, which uh, they reluctantly did because John especially was not a religious guy. And he ended up coming to faith in Christ, and uh, and the challenge right off the bat was that with the history of racism and all of the uh, segregation and, and, and racial uh, hate in the South, um, the idea that uh, he was going to a, a white uh, Christian congregation was really a very, very uh, new kind of experience, but uh, through the love of a few people, he, he was discipled and he came to Christ. And then he felt the call to go back to uh, uh, Mississippi in the Deep South to uh, to really do church work. Uh, but what he got, when he got there, uh, what he began to really think about is this community is no different than when I left. And as soon as a young person is able to leave, they're out of here. And so uh, somehow the church has to be different. Somehow we've got to think about a way to keep these kids here uh, and and kind of raise them up so that then they can go on to college, get educated, and then come back and and help to rebuild the community uh, as part of their uh, life vocation. Well, uh, as you can imagine, that was a huge challenge. uh, And, John's eight children actually began to, uh, now in 1960, um, began to in- integrate uh, some of the schools there in Mississippi a- after a short while when once uh, desegregation took root. And John began to also, uh, and this is, I-, I think, a really important piece, uh, Charles, for what's going on in Charlottesville, John began to also reflect on the idea that if the gospel had the power to break down barriers between 
a, a holy God and, and sinful human beings, which was a central message in, in the church, uh, evangelical church that he was really drawn to. But then he says, uh, does that same power uh, have the ability to break down cultural barriers between blacks and whites. And and he was asking that not as an academic question, but as a question of reality, because the white church and the black church were absolutely separated. Their, their, you know, their positions on uh, so many social issues were so different. And uh, many in the white church still maintain that, uh, that slavery, you know, maybe was was, uh, you know, elimination of slavery was not a good thing because of how it hurt their economic base. And and uh, and segregation uh, is something at least that we ought to hold on to. And no resistance to Jim Crow laws and other kind of uh, 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 realities uh, that, that uh, impacted how blacks were treated. But John began to say, uh, I believe that this gospel has to go beyond race or else it's not really any different than, uh, you know, anything we're, we've got going on in this world. And if we show the world that uh, that the love of Jesus can break down barriers between blacks and whites, that would really be something. And, and so that work that started in rural Mississippi, what began to happen is folks all over the country began to hear John articulate these ideas. He called it the three R's. So number one, uh, reconciliation, uh, being reconciled with God and with one another is what I just spoke about. The second was what he experienced moving from Pasadena back to uh, Mississippi. Relocation is what he called it. Hey, uh, if I'm going to really work on the issues of this community, I've got to be there, uh, rooted and planted there, moved into the neighborhood. So he says that's what God did. He relocated from heaven um, and it was the ultimate act of downward mobility, right? He, he leaves heaven to come into the earth and become a Galilean Jew. And uh, so relocation. And then the third thing that he began to talk about is, you know what? Um, when we talk about being reconciled with, with white folks and when we talk about being in the community, it's not to leave the neighborhood poor the way it is. But the fact is that in the kingdom of God, there's enough resource to really address the practical problems of, of our neighborhood if we could only work together. And so John does a radical thing. He invites white leaders and pastors to, to really begin a relationship and to invest not only their, themselves relationally, but to invest financially to begin to, to restore the neighborhood. So creating health centers and creating schools and, and creating housing, affordable housing, and addressing all those issues became what he called redistribution. Um, I'll, I'll end this little piece with this, Charles, because I know I, I've, I've been going on here, but, you know, the, the little uh, poem that John has used for uh, over 50 years is that uh, what he wanted to engage folks in is this idea that if you give a person a fish, they'll eat for one day. But if they if you teach them how to fish, they'll eat they'll be able to eat for a lifetime. And then, and then quickly he says, you know what? Sounds good, but it's a lie. Whoever owns the pond determines who gets to fish or not fish. And so he says economic empowerment uh, is essential to a healthy community. And so uh, ironically, 
this work that was rooted in the rural uh, part of America became uh, the blueprint in a sense, or at least the map that guided urban ministries all over the country who were looking for a more holistic uh, theology and approach to working among the poor. And that's, so now CCDA uh, brings people together from all over the country, which started in 1989 as a small group of about a hundred of us. Now we, we have a thousand CCDA members and, uh, and then we've got organizations all over the country and our annual gathering brings together, you know, close to 3000 people every year to, uh, really uh, encourage each other and to address how do we do this work that John helped us to start and now that we are taken to the next uh, kind of chapter because of all the changes and realities in our nation. Well, that leads me to something uh, before we jump into another part of the conversation here. In your book, Where the Cross Meets the Street, I'm, I'm just going to read from a paragraph here. However, there are no quick fixes or easy solutions to the deep issues of poverty and racial injustice in our neighborhoods. There is no way to offer real hope without entering into the pain of our communities. And then you're going to say that working from the outside rarely brings lasting change. And today, more than ever, we need to embrace an incarnational approach to relating to the poor. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I think that um, if you just uh, examine the current approach that churches take, um, so I, I know of one very, very well-known well church that was in a very poor community for many years, and the church kept growing and growing and growing so that it became a real mega church. And then uh, at a certain point, they had an opportunity to buy a, a huge venue downtown, and, and they, they went ahead and did that. And, um, but the whole time that church was, was uh, uh, in that community, here's, here's what happened. is they, they, they actually probably did a pretty good job of, of, of helping and serving people in that neighborhood, okay? And right. usually churches like that, what we'll do is we'll give backpacks, we'll give out a turkey at Christmas, we might have a, uh, you know, a food uh, a bank or a clothing closet. So we do a lot of stuff to help uh, reach out with compassion and to alleviate maybe some of the suffering that people go through to help them have a little bit better life. But the thing that's striking, and this could be repeated in looking at um, communities all over the country, is that the neighborhood which where the church was located uh, didn't change. Uh, mm. You know, the, the housing uh, quality, the, the quality of the schools, what was going on employment-wise, you know, all of the, all the markers of, of, of an unhealthy neighborhood uh, were all there. And so I think it's really possible for a church to flourish – by the standards of what we measure to be success, how many people attend, how much money comes in, how many missions programs we have. And again, it's ironic that usually that means how many people do we send on mission uh, across the oceans or south. And, and uh, you know, so we, but we don't look at what is going on in the neighborhood right around us, right? 
And so right. it's, it, it's, it's just kind of a, uh, for me, as I have seen this repeated over and over, what I could have to conclude is, is uh, I, I have to say, okay, now let's, let's examine what's missing. And, and I think there's two things that are missing. One is a theology that understands that the place that we live and how we do ministry, uh, being present in the middle of the community, even if it is a, a, a you know a changing or poor or even a very very uh, you know difficult community, that if we're not there present with the people, we don't really understand. Uh, what's going on and the best we can do is try to help those people over there because I don't live there but when the church is incarnate and this is this is the other piece is that usually uh, once a church begins to do a little better it is not unusual especially in the black community Latino community where the church uh, will move to another location uh, or, or keep that location uh, let me let me start. Usually, white churches left the neighborhood, right, and right. and now they're in, in a nicer place. But black and Latino churches, they kept the church in the hood, but the people moved out, and so right. the only time right. they come in is on Sunday morning, you know, to worship. And so whether it's the suburban church that's now, uh, you know, very far and distance from the hood, they can't affect change. And then the church that's in the hood, located in the hood for, for worship, they don't have a presence in the neighborhood, you know, in the neighborhood either, so they can't affect change as well. So the best we can do is help people uh, get their spiritual lives in order, and which is obviously a, a core core uh, responsibility and privilege of the church, but we don't. Uh, necessarily with that formula uh, make a difference in the addressing the poverty and the injustice and the racism that exists in our country. And so I think incarnation says the closer you are to the issue, the way Jesus came. And I, and I love this, Charles, that Jesus moves into the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, message Bible says that Jesus becomes flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood. And we got to ask, what kind of neighborhood did he move into? Uh, Galilee was an insignificant place outside of uh, the power base and and almost like a little rural kind of uh, poor community. Uh, Not poor in that, you know, people could make a living, but they had to work really, really hard, you know. And, And that's true of many rural areas today. But God chooses to incarnate himself at a place that people look down upon, uh, they said, man, that's the other side of the tracks. These people are backwards. They're uneducated. And so God identifies, and then he actually builds his team, not from the elite of Jerusalem, but when it comes time to begin to say, okay, here's my plan for changing the world, he begins with indigenous leaders from Galilee who all had that same kind of uh, you know, kind of uh, of uh, position where people look down on them as well. If you're, you know, uh, if one of us are in charge, we probably have a little different strategy. But, but it shows right. that there's power in being present with people and kind of helping them to pull out the leadership and the abilities that they have. And I think the greatest change that happens 
is that when a human being who is rejected by the world or maybe not esteemed by the world because of their lack of something, uh, when they uh, are captured by the idea that the God and creator of the whole universe looks at them and says, man, you're amazing. I'm well pleased with you. You're valuable. You're created in my image. Uh, you know, you're not a sec- second-class citizen. You are kind of the apple of my eye. Well, boy, when when we get that kind of uh, self-dignity and we understand who we are, uh, then in reality we don't see ourselves trapped in poverty anymore. Now we see ourselves as co-laborers with God to bring about justice in the, in the entire world. That doesn't yeah. happen when we're not close to the to the people and uh, when we're not uh, present. And, and you know, I, I, I joke a lot that when I moved to Little Village uh, 27 years ago into this Mexican neighborhood, a lot of first-generation Mexican individuals, a lot of undocumented individuals, uh, mostly Spanish-speaking. I was born in the United States. I'm a third-generation Mexican-American. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I spoke English without an accent after a number of years, and I <laughs> got my education. Uh, and when I came to Little Village, if I was really honest, I, I kind of thought I was the great brown hope moving in to save the neighborhood, right. you know. Cool. But in reality, uh, what I've learned after 27 years is, you know what, just being present has changed me, given me a better understanding of what's going on. And what I realize is the work of building a better neighborhood has to be done by all of us, that no one organization or church or person can do that by themselves. But uh, together, uh, we can accomplish uh, amazing things. And and I think all of that is rooted in what I call the linchpin of uh, incarnation, Okay. Well, let me, I mean, you you put a lot there, and I need about three hours to unpack all of it. I'm going to just try something uh, here at the moment. Uh, the apathy that occurs, an uh, example that you gave in terms of the, the, the white church moving out and the black church and the and Latino church remains in the community, but then there starts to be, uh, there's not a total connection there, Um uh, because they're not walking uh, with the community at that point. It's, it's, it's sort of like they're reaching for something else or somewhere else. And then, then we notice that the community starts uh, withdrawing and uh, and having pains and, and new ills manifest. And, and then we have these causes that come along. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to say just like with Charlottesville and also uh, – touch a little bit on the dreamers too uh, that we've, we've got to go in and start selling the community at that point uh, and, and I see that that in, in doing that something happened in the last 15, 20, 30 years that we just kind of left people floating out there on their own now we got to go back and do this re-education piece not only with them but ourselves yeah yeah no I, I think um uh, it's interesting because um, there was a, a, a period, you know, 15, 20 years ago when what we saw happening is um, with the emergence of very high-profile African-American leaders, um, mostly in, in the world of entertainment and in business and sports, all of a sudden, um, 
you know, um, we saw that there were, there were very successful and middle-class blacks. I think the same story could be told of Latinos, although we're, I think we've been a little bit far behind, both in population uh, growth. You know, it's hard to imagine that 25 years ago, uh, there's probably only about 8, eight uh, million Latinos in this country. Now we're close to 60, okay, million. Right. And, and most of those are legal. Okay, so, you know, there's a handful of, of folks that have come here undocumented, but the majority of that growth. But what's happened is all of a sudden uh, part of the American story is that anybody can su- succeed in America, and all you got to do is work hard, and there is no obstacle to success. And so what happened is that became – uh, you know, uh, kind of a, uh, uh, that, that example happened with, with people of color. And so th- there was a great deal of enthusiasm, you know, where all of a sudden you saw yourself on TV and somebody that looked like you. And, and, mm-hmm. and so folks began to, to, to think, well, maybe this American dream that Dr. King fought for and, and that we had the civil rights uh, movement for, and even the civil war, you know, that, uh, began mm-hmm. to address some of that, um, then all of a sudden, what, what, what you began to see is that it was a very small percentage of folks that actually were, were able to, to make that leap into uh, the middle class and to the promise uh, land of the American dream. And you realize that, uh, you know, now all of a sudden, uh, more and more uh, disenfranchised and marginalized people who often happen to be uh, people of color in the inner city, but not exclusively because, you know, Charles, in, in, in Virginia, you know that there's a lot of white poverty in our country. And yeah. um, and so, but but what you began to see is this growing gap between the, the, the wealthy and the poor, and uh, it became a big movement with the uh, uh, Occupy movement where, you know, the 1% was being called out. And, uh, well, with all of this kind of, you know, reckon, uh, realization that, boy, we're, we're not really better off. In many ways, uh, we're, we're uh, worse off. And I, I'm at a group right now where we're talking about poverty, and somebody was just saying that in California, in the Silicon Valley, that families are paying, uh, you know, uh, close to $1,000 to live in somebody's garage a month, you mm-hmm. know. And, and, wow. and, I mean, housing is just ridiculous. And so the now what we're beginning to realize is that people are not just poor because they don't want to work or they're lazy or they're not just poor, like, say, for the church's vernacular because they're sinners. But in many ways, we have to, we've begun to recognize, even though we, we knew this all along, okay, is that many people are poor and and uh, stay in that condition because they're also sinned against, okay? Right. That right. there are uh, forces of injustice and, uh, and oppression and lack of representation and, and that, you know, a lot of these systems – yeah, they're uh, they are maintained as part of what it uh, what has helped Americans achieve the American dream. As an example, there's a project out of St. Louis. Two African American brothers that are in their 80s 
or late 70s. It's called the, the uh, Free Labor Project. And what they're trying to raise up is the story that for 250 years, our nation had an advantage of free labor to help build its wealth, right? And right. that, you know, the institution of slavery. Well, that, uh, that uh, advantage has put that 1% and many others uh, at a place of un, un kind of paralleled uh, kind of privilege and, and, and success financially. And the, and the narrative goes that these folks got there on their own because they're smarter, because they're more, you know, this or that or the other, when the reality is, is the head start that, that allowed that to happen, at least in part, you have to you have to uh, attribute to 250 years of free labor, and then when you uh, eliminate that uh, flow and you go to battle for it, you know because uh, you know how it's going to change things. All of a sudden, Jim Crow laws and uh, other uh, systemic kind of uh, institutionalized uh, practices begin to try to make sure that you can keep uh, that uh, workflow coming and helping the rich get richer. And this now, it's not free labor, but it's cheap labor. And that's, I think, where the dreamers and the uh, immigrants come in to where, again, uh, very, very few people are, are achieving that American dream anymore. And uh, maybe it never was the dream that, as Christians, we ought to aspire to. But what we want to just do, we, we want to see uh, people be able to flourish, not in, you know, not by being displaced in poor neighborhoods, but by finding a way to uh, to come together to bring restoration to those communities, not gentrification for the rich coming back to the city, but what if we were really committed to do uh, community development uh, for the people that already live there? Great, great. I mean, every time you open your mouth, you open, you, you give me about a thousand different thoughts and questions to go to. So mm-hmm. uh, sometimes maybe we need to do an eight-hour segment. But Don right, Coleman right, just joined right. us. How, how you doing, John, Don? Hey, uh, man. Charles. Hey, Don. Yes. How are you? Uh, you yeah. know what, Charles? I hate to tell you this, but I am going to have to leave you on this call because I, I've okay. got this thing that I'm in Philadelphia and uh, uh, the the schedule got changed on me, but I I had to come and be on the call with you. And can I, can I say just a little bit about the CCDA conference? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, in less than a month, there'll be. 25 to close to 3,000 people coming together from all over the country. And the questions that Charles is asking here about how do people of faith, specifically Christians, engage in addressing both the uh, social issues of the day, the racial issues of the day, and to do it in a distinctively Christian manner, uh, uh, August 4th through the 7th, we'll be in downtown Detroit. We invite you to check out our website at ccda.org and we'd love to have you come. There's still the ability to come and register. And, uh, but for 30 years, uh, this group of uh, Christians have been, uh, you know, coming together to uh, encourage each other that the power of the gospel does have the power to reconcile us to God and to one another across racial lines. And, uh, but but in order to do that, that uh, we've got to be there, 
in close proximity to the poor. And then thirdly, that uh, this reconciliation isn't just about being nice to each other on a personal level uh, or having, you know, potlucks together where we eat each other's food, but it includes the promotion of economic justice because the disadvantages that many people of color and the poor have had for generations now has to be rectified. And it's, it's not a, uh, a forced government redistribution, but it's people of goodwill and with a heart for God saying, we're going to, uh, we're going to engage. And then we're going to ask our government to do uh, their fair part as well, because we pay taxes like everybody else. And so we want to make sure that uh, our investment goes not just to appease the poor, but to bring about real transformation and change in structures and uh, providing jobs, affordable housing, adequate health care, great education, which is what every single resident in this country desires. We're not asking for anything different, but we believe that we uh, have contributed a tremendous amount uh, to the fabric of this nation, and we want to be able to uh, participate as well in reaping the benefits of all of the hard work that millions of people have put in. And uh, and then finally, Charles, uh, right now uh, uh, there's one particular issue that's very, very top of mind for me and heart, and that is that uh, there are about 800,000 dreamers, young kids that were brought here by their parents uh, when they were young. So they're here uh, without legal permission, but they uh, had no uh, fault at all in being brought into this country. And now there's a real push to have Congress begin to, uh, to do uh, what an executive action could never do, and that is to legalize these young people many of them who are studying, going to college, uh, you know, uh, they're financially contributing to our economy by having jobs. And, and so uh, over the next uh, six months, uh, there's a window to uh, really protect these dreamers and to come alongside them and, uh, and see legislative change so that they might uh, really uh, be integrated into the fabric of our society. So, uh, you know, be on the lookout for information around the DREAM Act and, and uh, find out about the DREAMers because I think uh, they really are uh, some of the greatest examples of uh, uh, young people in this country that are here to, to really make a difference. And uh, so thank you, Charles, for all you do, and thank you, Don. I'm sorry I'm not going to be able to stay on, but uh, God bless you, and hopefully I'll see you in Detroit. Well, I'll see you All this right. weekend in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. So. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. Talk you to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. All right. See you in Detroit. Don Coleman. We have Don Coleman on the line. He dropped for a second, so we'll take a quick commercial break and so he'll get back on the line here. All right, Don, how's everything going in Richmond? Whew, man, praise God, brother. We we pressing in, man. Um 
you know, we uh you know about Charlottesville, right? Yeah, I heard Richmond's gonna be on fire this weekend, huh? So Saturday is, is you know, Saturday is our day and um you know, just just uh just trying to you know, people trying to figure out okay, how we gonna <clears throat> how we gonna do our best to not have what happened in Charlottesville happen here. So it's uh a lot of a lot of dialogue, a lot of conversations, a lot of people praying. Um, praise God. Wow, I mean, is it setting up anywhere like Charlottesville, or or has it the Charlottesville temper that down some? I, I we we're feeling that Charlottesville has tempered it down, but the reality is that um, you know you got some of these groups. They I mean they really are. They could come out of anywhere. You know that's the challenge. Right. Is yeah. They don't have to announce what they're going to do, you know, um, yeah. and that's that's where the police department, the police department is definitely gearing up to be fully prepared uh, for a worst case scenario. And what about the community? What what where is the faith community um, in all of this? I know in Charlottesville they had the uh, those different segments set up. Um, up there. Uh, so how, how is it shaping up in Richmond in, in terms of response? Well, again, you just said the key word. At this point, what's happening is multiple groups are are doing uh, prayer vigils and things of that sort. Um, right after Charlottesville, a week or so after Charlottesville, faith community came together and we did a, we did a statement uh, that ended up with over, 800 people signing it, representing over five or 600 churches. Um, but in this instance, what we're trying to do versus trying to do something large, we're, we're really encouraging people uh, to do smaller gatherings of prayer. And then we're going to, you know, we're trying our best to keep a pulse on what happens Saturday. Um, it, you know, we, we, we have enough momentum that um, – we can we can definitely make a response. Okay, what what I, I, one of the things um, you know I, I see out of Charlottesville was a continued conversation with the um, let's let's just focus on those statues for a moment. What what is the overwhelming feeling in Richmond about those statues? Um, uh, I guess from both sides of the community, white and black. Well, the momentum in Richmond at this point is overwhelming take them down I mean okay. um, and so you still have pockets of people um, and when I talk about pockets of people I'm talking about people who are, are talking reasonably there's a small pocket of those kind of people of course the extremists are the extremists you know right. um, but when you're talking about the general public it's it's overwhelmingly take them down yeah okay okay well I, I guess the question come now is um if there wasn't a Charlottesville, would it be addressed? Well, yeah, Richmond Richmond already had a commission um, that the, the mayor had set up a commission to talk about the statue. And initially, his 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 perspective before Charlottesville was taking them down was not even on the agenda. That's what okay. it was initially. After Charlottesville, he really opened it up to hey. Um, yeah, taking them down should be a part of it. And so, like I said, when you look at the majority of public opinion is leaning towards taking them down, 
Uh, but there is a contingent of people. Um, his original idea was to add context to the statues. And so there still is a, a, a remnant of people who still feel that could have some value. One of, one of the things we were talking about before you, you came on is um, looking at the apathy in, in the community, especially um, in our communities of color, uh, in terms of uh, responding to these issues uh, and, and, and where, where they are so complacent at this time because of the things, the gentrification and, and other things that have occurred in the community that kind of put them in the back burner. Uh, is that a prevalent, uh, I, I guess, uh, way of looking at things in Richmond? Because I know it in some other communities of poverty uh, where people of color concentrated, their their response to these types of things are slow, and um, and, and they look at it. Well, how is that going to affect me? Kind of thing. Yeah, Charles. I mean, the the challenge right now in Richmond, Virginia, is 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 uh, uh, Michael Paul Williams, a writer for the Richmond Times Dispatch, called it out this week. Is is you have RVA, which is the new hill Richmond, then you have Richmond, um, right. which is the broken part of Richmond. Like you say, a lot of where there's concentrated poverty and people feeling disenfranchised. You are asked that it breaks my heart. The 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 people who have the greatest need um, don't seem to be engaging in these issues. Like the other night, we had a meeting um, because they're they're trying to get people's input on what they want from the new superintendent in Richmond Public Schools. And, right. of course, the most impoverished schools are are in these poor areas, and there's only 12 people showed up at the meeting. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, again, when you think, you're looking at these parents, today it comes out in the paper that, you know, the majority, a lot of these schools are failing, and you see your schools are failing, but they're saying they're going to elect a new superintendent, and they want to hear what you want to see in the new superintendent, and nobody comes out to give any input. But and you're saying, "Wow!" But now, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's a level of hopelessness that is set in with people. That again, I feel like the larger uh, people who are invested, engaged, politicians, administrators, we've got to figure out how do we help these families feel like their opinion matters. Hmm. Well, let's back up. Since there's a, church, there's a church on every corner, where does the church stand? I mean, are they engaged? Well, should, I mean, did they help engage the people to come out and to see why they need to be there? So. There you go. And, and again, this sounds a little selfish, but the reality is that's one of the definitely one of the ways we try to operate our local church is constantly challenging our people to make sure that they're engaging as citizens and make sure that they're inviting their neighbors to engage as citizens. Yeah. It, I, I, you know, I'm hearing you and, and I'm feeling that pain too, because, you know, obviously it's not something that's uh, unique to Richmond. It's, it's a lot of folks, I guess, I guess the bigger question is how do we work through all that? How can we, because I think too often we're operating on a higher level um, that doesn't even touch the folks down in the neighborhoods. Uh, 
except if they see it on the news or read about it in the newspaper. One of the ways we do it, man, we, we, we got to invest in people. As a local church, invest in people that we put out on the street to intentionally engage with what's going on. And that's, we, again, we've been blessed here that um, with our youth pastor, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much we're paying him, but he spends three to four hours a day in our local high school that's absolutely struggling. But he spends right. three to four hours a day there working with the freshman academy, working with parents. I mean, that's where I think the church could make an investment is, is we invest in people to be community organizers and stop waiting for the government to do it. And um, we take some of our resources and, and challenge people to be out there engaging with families. Well, where are we going to find those voices that are going to go out there and carry that message? I mean, because Don Coleman is only one person. That's correct. Uh, and somehow we've got to be able to effectively engage uh, the pastors. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I spoke to yesterday with some folks was, you know, a lot of times we don't do those things that are right because we're always thinking about economics, our pocketbook. And Come on. We, if we dare go over there and do something, then we got to face the raft that they might fire us or, or, Come on. or, you know, some or take away part of our, our livelihood. But, but then how can you, then if you decide to say something, how can somebody effectively believe you if that is what you're basing your, your truth telling on? Uh, you know, I think we get confused at times that, you know, we want people to believe what we're saying but we only speak when it's comfortable or, wow. or, we, or, or we know the folks can, you know, within the church are not going to call us up on Sunday night or Monday morning and, and say, you know, pastor, you know, we don't like what you're doing. You're fired, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I mean, what is the answer? I mean, where do we start? Well, again, uh, <laughs> I'm talking to a, a gentleman, Charles. <laughs> it takes yeah. people like you and myself to be unashamed, to consistently challenge our pastoral friends that it's time to speak up and then just keep challenging them. I mean, and that's what I appreciate about you. I appreciate about this your, your, your program here because that's it. I mean, and I've been doing it for 25 years, and right. um, it's, it's, it's just like, yeah, when is it, when is it going to be the other way around where – Pastors and leaders are showing up, are engaged, are involved, and 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 fired up. I just feel like people like us can't give up. I served for for eight years, you know, on the Richmond school board. I mean, but that was a part of me showing up. Hey, because for a while in my neighborhood, we couldn't get people that even wanted to run for school board, you know. And so, um, I've accepted the call, and I think that's what you've done. And and we just got to stay at it. I feel like there is a move amongst younger leaders that leading is more is bigger than their what they do in their church and in their pulpits on Sunday. Um, I That's think true. we got some That's young true. pastors that are realizing that. And, and that's the hope. And I think part of that keeps me going because I see that now. I see that the younger generation is less they they're less tolerant with the old ways of doing things right? Uh, and they're more uh, 
and they wanted to be about the hands and the feet, actually moving yes. and movement. Yes. Um, and that's encouraging. That's very encouraging. Um, yes. But I think uh, having folks like you around, especially in the Richmond area, is the asset, you and David, and, and um, mm-hmm. you guys being there to kind of mentor them along. Uh, right. Not to inhibit them, but to show them the way and help them, you know, and be there and supporting them is, is key because oftentimes they get out there and uh, as, as one uh, young leader told me yesterday, we get out there and do stuff, but we don't see y'all. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's, that's a statement. I mean, there. Wow. And that's, so, that's... <laughs> so, yeah. And so my commitment is there, if you dare, I'm going to be there with you. Uh, that's right. Uh, one, way, one way or another. Um, right. Because, if we don't support them, then, you know, the result is bad. I mean, I don't see a hope. You know, I, re- I really don't see any hope at that point. Because um, uh, people are hurting, and you know that, like I know, That's and, right. uh, especially especially there. Uh, and a lot of times folks um, just want somebody to, to be there for them, somebody to, to understand and listen to them and listen to their issues. That's right. Uh, and I think when we don't do that, uh, I think what happens is what what you were speaking of. Only twelve people show up. Right, uh, right. Yeah. They they begin to feel their voice doesn't count, and so when there are opportunities for them to have input, disenfranchised or uh, are feeling so like their voice doesn't count to make the effort to come out. And again, the thing seems to be what you were just describing, getting the you know us older pastors supporting these younger pastors when they want to do outreach, when they want to get outside the four walls of the church, we encourage them to do that versus saying, no, we need you at church right now. You know, no, we encourage them to get out there in the streets um, with these families, um, encouraging them to also uh, participate in what's happening in their communities. Yeah. The flip side of that too, not necessarily the flip side, it could be, but, um, uh, I think we've, we've become too rigid um, also in, in – because when you said something about your youth pastor being in that high school, and what came to my mind is um, some churches will, will lay down – I think it's almost an outline of what has to happen and, and, and the results, or otherwise this is not counted success because they want it tomorrow morning, not two or three years from now. Uh, right. And, and so, so they start laying all these – these rules and regulations on what you can do, how far you can go with that. And I think that's, right. that's part of what the hang up is. Cause I know some young folks have left some churches because of that. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I mean, that's the thing. It's not just like it's a fly, but these, these guys or ladies are just popping up and they don't have the talent. I mean, they, they're, in, they're vested with a lot of talent and ideas and energy. And I mean, it, if I could just zap something from them and put it in me so I can go a little longer, you know, so, uh, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but we, yeah. but I think we, we, I mean, although we do need structure, but we, we become so structured that we've all structured ourselves. And that's such a thing. But, uh, there you go. That's good. That's a good yeah. point. And we do the young people, they want that fluidity. They want that ability to move with the moment. And you're right. Sometimes, the, the structures that we put in place um, don't allow them the flexibility that they need to move, to reach the generation that they're trying to reach. And so I know for me, man, I'm constantly 
reevaluating and, and allowing myself to step back and let them step forward. And um, I'm, I'm seeing some good fruit from it. I'm seeing some things where I'm like, wow, I wouldn't have done that that way. But look, it worked. It worked better yeah. that way. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and that encouraged them to, to, re- to continue to release their energy and also encouraged them not to leave your church. You know, yeah, yeah. They're not gonna exactly. sit around for so long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of like in the old, in the old Baptist where in New Baptist days too. Some of them still away. Same way, you know, is that you, you gotta wait your time before you can do anything. And, uh, yep. That, so you wait. That, you wait those your, days your are over. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Those days exactly. are over, man. They they're not, and they also not gonna be in training for twenty years. I mean, they're oh, just no. not gonna oh, do no. it. I mean. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what what other things are happening in Richmond? Uh, I mean, what's going on with East End Fellowship, your church now? Well, again, um, you know, we're, we're around 13 years old now. We're making that next push where we're really big, making a big focus into what we call house churches. Um, okay. That in our in our neighborhood, we're really focusing into that that like block to block, house to house, really engaging our neighbors. Um, again, really owning that as as believers, we can actually work with people on a from ten to fifteen people coming together, serving one another, could actually mm-hmm. impact your neighborhood more than people just coming to a large gathering on a Sunday. And so we're doing both. Mm-hmm. We have a four o'clock okay. gathering, a couple of hundred people, and, and you know our strength is we we are diverse. We're diverse racially. We're diverse economically. Um, the average age at our church is is 27 years old. Um, wow! And the young, wow. yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Young people enjoy it; they like it, and they've also learned to appreciate older guys like me because <laughs> I'm releasing them. I'm not trying to hold it. I'm not trying to control it. You know, I preach once or twice a month, possibly less than that, but I'm letting these young guys really run with it, and I'm I'm excited. You know, um, because I believe our our local church is is really trying to model how do you allow this next generation to really uh, lead lead in ways that they feel like they need to lead in order to keep the church vibrant. Because I'm constantly coming into churches that quote unquote are dying, and I believe the body of Christ we need to own that and 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 um, realize that we got to do things differently to keep churches young and vibrant. And so, like I said. A lot of times I go to pastors' meetings and I hear them groaning and complaining, and I'm saying, "Well, man, I I got all these 27 year olds," and but I know how that happens. We release the young people. We don't try to get them to fit into our old structures. We're releasing them to do things differently. We, I mean, we we do a service. We got a service coming up called the Gallery, which is all about the art. Whatever way you express art, that's the sermon for that Sunday. Everybody wow. bring your various ways of expressing art. If you cook food, bring some samples of the food you cook. If you sing, we're going to let you sing a song that you wrote. If you do art, we're going to let you display some of your artwork. Your, one, one young lady did some woodwork of the day, of, of that, that was the, the governmental district of, the, of our East End called the 7th District. She did a wood carving of that with lights in it and lighting up different locations. It was just like, what? But that kind of creativity and letting kids see, no, this is a part of the kingdom of God. This is a part of how we express 
the creativity of our God, which then leads back to the fullness of the gospel, that you meet this God and he makes you brand new. And so, yeah, man, thanks for just asking. We we're pressing in um, as a local church, again, diverse. We have diverse leadership, We and we recognize we have to be intentional about um, facing race and all of that, specifically in a place like the South and Richmond. And we do as a local church constantly have hard conversations to make sure that, that we are part of the solution and not a part of the problem. 